All righty, everybody. We're going to get started. You can make your way to Acts 21, where we're picking up where we left off, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 21, the close of the third and final missionary journey. Lots to talk about, so let's get started with a word of prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray that as we settle in, your spirit, who's here with us, would settle our hearts and help us to take our thoughts captive and to open our hearts and to approach your living word, Lord, um, with the right attitude, the most helpful attitude to be open and listening with ears that can truly hear. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well. Here's a map that by now you are quite familiar with. <laughs> the map showing the uh, area of the third missionary journey for sure. Uh, missionary journeys one and two also uh, are in the same general vicinity, but it was Jesus' very last words, were they not? Acts chapter one and verse eight, where Jesus says to his disciples, this is the thing I want you to remember. You take this life-saving, soul-transforming message to the world as my witnesses. Start here in Jerusalem, wider, ever-widening circles, Judea, Sumeria, and then he says to the ends of the earth, and here we go, you know, some uh, 27 years after Jesus we are 27 years out from Jesus' words at our verse today at Miletus, where we're going to pick up. But, you know, and we've been studying, uh, hard to believe that one man, one spirit-filled, devoted man, a former persecutor of the Christian church, uh, converted Pharisee, spearheads the entire task of taking the gospel to the world outside of Israel to the entire Roman Empire. One man and a team, a church and a team of missionaries. And so we've seen uh, three missionary journeys. So to catch you up to context before we dive into Acts 21, we've seen three official organized trips that started out at Antioch, this church, really the first church of the Gentiles ever. And they are the sending church and they have evangelized the entire region Paul the Apostle, of course, leading the way. It's been a, it's been a dozen years uh, of an effort there. Now we're at the third and final trip. Uh, New, New Testament churches have been established. Paul has already written at this point six of the New Testament epistles, uh, 12,000 miles total land and sea, 1,500 square miles of a region evangelized. But... Right now, we've been seeing that the Holy Spirit has been impressing Paul in every stop along the way. He's headed to Jerusalem now, where the third missionary journey ends. All the missionary journeys are over. He is heading to, uh, at each port, the Holy Spirit is revealing to him that tough times are ahead here in Jerusalem. And so he knows it's coming, and so things are getting a little heavy. Uh, now, so as we see, uh, Acts now, chapter 21, verses 1 through 17, take us from where we left off, Miletus, 
all the way to Jerusalem. So 1 through 17 covered the end of the, the missionary journeys. And that's what we're going to take a look at. The context, context, of course, now we last stopped last week at Miletus, where Paul the Apostle didn't have time to go to the church he planted at Ephesus. Rather, as you will recall, he called for the, all the pastors, all the associates to come and have a, a farewell time on the beach there, the port of Miletus. And the, there he, he, he gave a heart-rending farewell speech, didn't he? Um, be godly examples, that's what matters, man. You're preaching one thing, you gotta live the same thing. Practice what you preach. And he told those guys, preach the whole gospel. Don't leave out parts. Don't just tell them the pleasant parts, but tell them the unpleasant parts too, because that's the whole counsel of God. And then he said, keep yourselves from greed. There's going to be a lot of problems in ministry with money. And so 2,000 years ago, Paul is saying, watch out for greed. And then he, he leaves them with this thought, guard God's people. He said, God's people are precious to him. He bought them. He bought them. They're his. Your, your position is to guard them. He bought them with his own blood, Acts chapter 20 in the speech. He says, guard them from what he calls savage wolves who just want to make disciples who follow after them, who come in and bring false teaching that hinders and, and, and actually condemns others who haven't been saved. So he said, watch out for those wolves. Uh, and then the last thing he said before we continue on with the journey is, Sadly, you're never going to see my face again. Paul led these men to the Lord. He's discipled them for three years. He, the world has been changed by those men. Those men, it said in Acts, that they reached out from a discipleship school that Paul had in Ephesus, where they're from, these pastors, and they affected, a, they, they started churches. Every church that you read about in Revelation chapter two and three, the churches of Asia are those churches which these men and Paul leading the way had established. And so, can you imagine? You're never gonna see me again, ever. Wow, no wonder the word described in there is torment as they had to say their last goodbye. So they knelt there, they prayed together, they wept, long embraces, it was time to go. Uh, Paul and the team had to get back on the boat to go to Jerusalem, and these pastors needed to get back to the congregation at Ephesus. Verse one. Now after we had torn ourselves away from them, those pastors, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, modern day Syria or Lebanon, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, modern day Lebanon where our ship was to unload its cargo, finding disciples there. We stayed with them seven days. Now through the spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city 
and there on the beach we knelt to pray. Now I have a second map that just kind of zones in on our section that we just read a little bit closer. So, so if you're taking notes, let's do some island hopping. All right, so island hopping. Uh, these are modern day, the Greek isles, uh, most of them. And so they're on a coasting vessel. They're, they're waiting until they uh, can find a ship that can cross the sea. But until then, they sail the 40 miles to Kos, uh, then they, uh, I've got a picture of Kos. I just like looking. It's like, wow, somewhere there. You know, it's just, it's just cool. It's really a real place, you know. And then they, they go 85 miles to Rhodes. Now, this is a modern day picture because there's a hotel there which got four stars on Yelp if you're interested. <laughs> Somewhere there, their ship pulled in with those eight godly men, Luke and Titus and Timothy, and all of the Gentile representatives from those churches, just awesome. And then from there to Patera, right? Uh, there's a picture there of just the ruins there by the sea, uh, just awesome. And that's where they find, they leave the coastal vessel and they find a ship, a cargo ship, that's gonna do business and, and is able to cross the sea for that 400 mile, back to the uh, map there, that 400 mile trip from, now, now by the way, this, the first two islands are Greek, Patara is Turkish, you're in Turkey now. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's right on their land, you would think so. And then there's 400 miles here too, now they're in the Middle East. Once you're in Tyre, you're just north of Israel, you're in Lebanon. And Tyre is a very interesting place. We know the Lord Jesus Christ went there and healed people. Remember the Syro-Phoenician woman with the demonized child. So Jesus was there, and perhaps that's where the church will come from because they, they meet those disciples. So uh, after, uh, first of all, why the details? Right? Why does the Holy Spirit say, we went to this island, then we went to this island, then we went to this island, then we, we, we crossed the sea, with, with Crete was on our left, on the port side. Why? Why are you telling us all of this? Why is it important, Holy Spirit? Why couldn't you just say, well, we made our way to Tyre? You save a lot of ink right there, right? <laughs> the Holy Spirit wants you to know that redemption is rooted in history. That the Lord Jesus Christ came into a real world and that the Bible is inundated with facts, names and dates and places and times and events and wars and countries and borders. That all you have to do is verify. Do a little verifying and a little digging and you're gonna come up with what C.S. Lewis calls the trilemma. He's either a liar, a lunatic or Lord but you can't have it always, all right? You have to pick one. And this, that first we went here, then we went there, and that you could verify. And of course, you, you're gonna say, hey, this isn't a myth. This isn't a myth. It happened. These are the places. Dig a little. You'll find a rock with Pontius Pilate's name on it, which they did. And it's there. I've seen it with my own eyes. It's verifiable. Can I just... Can I just, can you indulge me just for one more second? <laughs> Luke chapter three. In the 15th year date of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, name, title, emperor, 
when Pontius Pilate, name, was governor, position, Judea, place, Herod, title, person, tetrarch, position, thank you, <laughs> Galilee, place, relationship, brother, Philip, person, tetrarch, position, Iteria, and Trachonitis, <laughs> no, Nidus, it sounds like a disease, but it, <laughs> it, it, it just a place. <laughs> places, places, Lysanias, Tetrarch, name, position, Abilene, place, during the high priesthood position, Annas and Caiaphas, relationship, son and father-in-law, word of God came to John, person, son of Zechariah, genealogy, place, desert, all the country around the Jordan, river, title, location, uh, geography, preaching a baptism of repentance. So why couldn't you just say, in those days, John the Baptist came eating grasshoppers and yelling at the top of his lungs. <laughs> Repent! Why couldn't you just say that? Because it really happened. Check all of those names out. Check all the places. Jesus was born of a woman into a real world. God walked among us and brought the truth into a historical setting which today, if you have an open heart, is verifiable. Now, so they get off the boat now. They're, uh, they've gone the 400 miles back to the map. Thank you, Caitlin. And, and now they're on Middle Eastern soil. They're in Lebanon. Uh, they search out some Christians. By the way, the word in your text for search is really search and uh, find, rather, is really a word that means to hunt out and find. And so they went looking for, the, for Christians, of course, what we should be doing in that kind of situation. And they stopped for a week. Now, it's kind of neat. We didn't know there was a church in Tyre, a Christian church in Tyre. How did it get there? Well, <laughs> Paul planted it. You want to know how? <laughs> Back in, let me show you, Acts 11 and verse 19, it says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia. Where did the Christians run to when Paul the apostle was Saul the Pharisee terrorizing the church? Acts 11 says, they ran, those Christians went and Acts 8 verse 4, preaching the gospel as they went. So they go, and how far do they get? They get to Phoenicia, where they plant a church. So Paul gets to pull into town and say, hey, these are one of the churches I planted. Oh, well, sort of. So Saul helped to plant. So Paul, I thought that was funny. That's all right. A little irony there. And so now they're honing in on Jerusalem, right? But there's not much to talk about except this verse 4. Once they get to Lebanon, wow. Paul's already been saying, everywhere I go, in every city, Acts chapter 20, verse 23, in every city, the Holy Spirit's been saying, hardship, prison, hardship, prison, hardship, prison, trouble, trouble, trouble. So we already knew that. Right, And so here, in verse 4, it says, through the Spirit, they urge Paul not to go. Paul's already said, the Lord, the Spirit has bound me, compelled. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He said, I'm going as a prisoner of the Holy Spirit. 
He has bound me to this thing. It's his will. I'm following his will. So here's what the commentators say about a little bit of a confusing verse that might sound at first glance like through the spirit was warning him not to go. Here's what they say. Instead of concluding the spirit is warning him not to go, we think it's better in light of the other scriptures as well to understand it in this way. They understood what the spirit was revealing. Paul was going to suffer. That they came to the conclusion and urged Paul not to go because of what was being revealed through the spirit. And so that's what the majority of commentators say. Paul already told everybody, hey man, uh, the spirit's leading me. I'm compelled. I'm going to Jerusalem. In every city, the Holy Spirit's saying the same thing. Paul's a sensitive man. I would think the writer of 14 New Testament books and by the the account of what we have of this kind of guy, it's very unlikely for him to disobey and willfully reject the plan of God. So uh, it is, however, very common for Christians to hear sufferings coming and then think, therefore, since suffering is a bad thing, we all need to avoid it. Now, that's common. So I can understand the Spirit saying, hey, there are rough times. And then in that revelation, we say, you should not go. But, you know, that's not the way it works with the Lord. It's not uncommon for him to call us, as he has millions of souls, to lay down their lives, to put ourselves in harm's way. Uh, Peter Uh, Rather, Pastor David Guzik put it this way. The warnings from the Holy Spirit here were not intended to, uh, were intended rather to prepare Paul, not to stop him. And so I think think that's what's going on there. We're going to get a chance to revisit this theme because it happens again in the next house. So uh, before we get back on the ship, notice the bond of Christian love. Seven days later, they've met a few times during the week, right? And they've had own fellowship groups. Everybody comes out in a heartfelt goodbye. They bring the wives and the kids. And you don't often think about Paul this way. We think about Paul as, you know, an evangelist who has to evangelize the world. And you're not up to it, Barnabas, take a hike. You know, but the women and the kids are there. And they're crying, they're hugging, and they're praying. There is nothing to compare with the bond, the supernatural love of God poured into our hearts as believers redeemed by the same blood of God. Averted from an eternity without Christ, perishing, reigning and ruling with him forever and ever. You get two Christians together, it doesn't surprise me that there's this kind of bond after a week. I told you about this little time of feeling this bond with this guy that I didn't even know. I was teaching at a vocational college. The bell rang to change classes. The doors fly open, and everybody's stampeding through the hallways. And I had to change classrooms myself, so I was walking in the hallway. And in stride with me was another man, a younger man. And we were walking, and he was humming. And I was in his airspace, so I was listening. And I'm like, I know that song. I know that song. We sing that song on Sunday. So instead of stopping him and turning to him, I just started singing along with him. 
right? So I did this thing where I'm just looking straight ahead, and he's looking straight ahead, and he's humming along, you know, one of our choruses, and I started humming along too. And we're in stride, and we both know I'm doing it, and he hears me, you know? Everybody else heard me too, probably. And we get to the T at the hallway where he has to go left, I gotta go right, and we finish, da, 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 and then we stop, we look at each other, big smile and a big hug, <laughs> just a bear hug, you know? And then we just said, we didn't have time to talk. <laughs> we didn't have time to talk. Listen, uh, that's what it takes. That's what it is. It was closer to him in 10 seconds than lifelong relatives related to me, flesh and blood, I had more in common with him, more love, more joy, more camaraderie. We're going to the same place. We're saved through the same blood, rescued out of the same darkness. We've got the same story. We're bro- brothers and we have the same father. And it's just awesome. So you see these little get-togethers and they're out and they're, they're sobbing because, yeah, because we're together in this. All right. Onward, mateys. You ready? Get back on the boat. (laughs) Six to 16. Now, after saying goodbye to these Lebanese Christians there, or Tyre, we went aboard the ship, so now they're coasting down the coast, and they returned, uh, while the others returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemy. That's how you say it. And it's the seaport for Galilee. So we're in Israeli waters, and we're docking at an Israeli dock where we greeted the brothers, another church, notice, good job, and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea. We are now at the port for Jerusalem and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and all the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Oi, bay, I am ready. Oh, sorry, that's not, it's, you gotta look really hard for that. It's in the Greek, not. <laughs> I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh. Yes, you do pronounce the M in that case, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So let's pause there. We've done some island hopping. Now some warnings and weepings again, all right? Warnings and weepings. So we're in Jerusalem, we're, we're done. The missionary journeys are over, done. Now, 
first, a flash from the past. They're staying at the house of Philip. Oh, man. You guys remember Philip? Man, 20 years earlier, okay? 20 years earlier, Philip was that bright-eyed young man full of the Holy Spirit and promise. And the church at Jerusalem was just throngs of people. They were growing. The problem, all the elders, pastors, overseers, same work, were out serving, serving, serving practical matters. And the word of God and the study and the prayer was being diminished. So they said, hey, let's look for men filled with God's spirit who have a heart to serve and let's appoint them to do the practical work and we'll give ourselves over to what God has called us and it made the church thrive. But Philip was one of the seven in those days. And and of course, God didn't just keep him feeding widows in the kitchen. Uh, He had a heart that wanted to do more. So in that persecution that comes after Stephen, his best friend or so, uh, was martyred He fled, he went to Samaria, preached the gospel with miracles and multitudes of Samaritans got saved. And so you remember Philip, he did a lot for the Lord. Um, But it's very interesting to me that Saul the apostle killed his friend who he was serving with. It would be like on our team, you know, Adam and Jim, and then hosting the man, Adam hosting the man who had a part in executing Jim. Hey, it's me, the Apostle Paul, the guy who destroyed a lot of Christians that you knew 20 years ago, and including your best friend. I really can't imagine somebody telling Philip, well, Saul was doing his murderous thing. Can you imagine somebody pulling Philip aside and saying, hey, don't worry. You know, in 20 years, you'll be hosting him in your house. He'll be leading Bible studies and writing scriptures. (laughs) Oh, really? Honestly? The power of a changed life. Only God can turn a murderer into a missionary. And only God could give the grace to Philip to forgive to open the door and fall into Paul's arms and hug and cry and talk about the things that, the wonderful things that the Lord has done. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And forgiveness, well, Philip knew that. Those godly girls, they prophesy and serve the Lord. Why? Because they weren't raised by a bitter, unforgiving father who said, I got kicked out of Jerusalem by this crazy man. You know, I wind up in Caesarea. I didn't even want to be here. My best friend was killed. Now this guy's coming over. (laughs) He's not like that. That's why he has four beautiful girls who prophesy and love God and want to be in the ministry because they were raised in a house where there's mercy and grace and agape love. That's just awesome. Forgiveness, if you want it, you must extend it or you don't get it. Mark 11, 25 through 26. And let's not miss one thing more about Philip while we're on the subject, okay? What a beautiful lesson this guy teaches us. Here's what we last heard, Acts 8. So 20 years ago, this is all we've ever heard. 
when they came up out of the water, so Philip baptizes this Ethiopian dignitary, a royal official who's going to take the gospel to an already probably thriving church in Ethiopia. The spirit of the Lord snaps Philip up. Uh, well, we talked about this back in the day. Remember, he's on a chariot riding down the southern road to Gaza. There's nothing out there but deserts and sidewinders and cactus, no water. And a mile after mile after mile, Philip's thinking, oh, this chariot's going pretty far. So he's done. He baptizes him in a little oasis, and boom, the Lord says, the ride home, it's on me. <laughs> and takes him home. He beams him up and beams him back down somewhere. Who can say that? You know, Elijah, Enoch, the church who will be raptured, but not many more than that. All right. <laughs> he went on his way rejoicing. Check this out, but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. What you been doing for 20 years, Mr. Famous Deacon? Preacher to the Samaritans, friend of James, friend of John and Peter. He's famous. He was famous. He did miracles. He preached to royalty. Then he got raptured up. And what happened? What happened for 20 years? Here's my testimony. He says to Paul, What you been up to for 20 years, man? You're like moving, shaking. I met this young lady. We settled down. I've been a faithful husband and a daddy to these four girls who love God. There's more than one way to be a hero. I love this. Faithful in the limelight, the hustle, the bustle, the moving, the shaking, and faithful in quiet obscurity, serving the Lord as a faithful family man. A good husband, a stable provider, a loving daddy to four little ones. No argument with him. You're done with that season. But I, look what I was doing. I need to be busy. I need to be busy. Here, look at her. Look at your life. He's cool with that. Why? Because he's a Bible hero. <laughs> Bible heroes are cool with God's will. Whatever that means. Amen? That's what sets them apart. We're the ones with, you want me to do what, when, how, why? <laughs> right? Okay, sorry. Now, I'm sure the fellowship there was sweet. Can you picture the girls, 17, 15, 14, 13? And they're all proclaiming God's word together. There's Bible studies, the Apostle Paul, there's Timothy and Luke, like I said. They're all together. They're having some good food, singing, laughing. Who's that? Agabus. Agabus walks in. You remember Agabus? Back in, I don't know, where was it? It was in Acts 11, 27, and 8. He accurately, a prophetic ministry, he accurately predicted a bad famine, especially for the Jerusalem area to, to help the uh, Jerusalem Christians to get ready for that. So he was right. Uh, he was right that time. And so he's there to bring a message, a message we've already heard, but here's how I imagine it. Now, back in the day, the, the belts are different, obviously, uh, than the ones we wear on our trousers, as Jim likes to call them. <laughs> I've never heard anyone call them trousers except Pastor Jim. <laughs> All right, so the belt's hanging by the side, 
there at the coat rack. So in walks Agabus. He sees it. He's making the connections. He sees them all at the living room. This is how I imagine it. He takes the belt. He ties it up, ties, it, ties himself up, and he says, anyone know whose belt this is? The owner is in for some trouble. And then everybody bursts into tears, right? Now, very Old Testament-esque of him to play act out the message, and he does that. And uh, it says he will be handed over to the Gentiles, meets the Romans, the military, the bad guys. Uh, notice the Holy Spirit didn't bring the message to the girls. Love that. Through the girls. No. Let the guy do that. And to break their hearts. Oh, can you just hear the little girls say, I just see prison doors slamming shut, <laughs> you know? God, uh, I love God. He is smart. I mean, he's just wise and loving. I know that was profound. And so, <laughs> did you catch the text? Here's the revelation. Agabus is not saying, therefore, do not go. When he gives the revelation, when we heard, all of us, all of us, the girls, Uncle Paul, don't go. Their dad, Philip, Paul, you crazy man? Did you hear what he just did? Do you want that? Luke, I'm sorry, it says all. They all said, Paul, don't go. And he said, why are you breaking my heart? I already told you in chapter 20, verse 24. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, pull out the scrolls, man. Are you not writing this down? I'm being led. And then he says, I don't care what it costs to obey God. Come on, guys. Here's what he writes to the Philippians about suffering in God's will. Philippians 1, 12 through 14. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what's happening with me. He's in jail while he's writing. As a result, it's really served to advance the gospel. It's become clear throughout the whole palace guard. I'm witnessing to everybody. People are getting saved here that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, uh, most of the Christians have become more confident and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel with fear. So he's saying, you know, you guys, uh, think differently about tough times the Lord leads you into because he's got a purpose. He's advancing his cause and his kingdom. He goes on in, in, again and he says, I want Christ to be exalted in my body. I don't care whether that means life or death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I go on living in the body, it's going to be a lot of work. So I'm torn. What do I want to do? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. My goal, my heart's desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is, that's the best deal of all, but it's more necessary that I hang out here and help you. And so we just see God's purpose in calling somebody to suffer is, is a good will sometimes. And lastly, Philippians 1.29. For it's been granted, the word in the Greek means gifted, to you on behalf of Christ, not just to believe, hey, I'm a believer, I'm going to heaven and all of that, but also to suffer for him. It's perfectly within God's will to call us to deny self, pick up cross, and follow. So he, he's not doing anything wrong. It's not something that he has to say, hey, I've got a situation that is going to be painful, so I have to avoid it because it can't possibly be God's will. 
That's what everybody in the room thought. Luke, Timothy, everybody. Titus, well, oh, can't, can't be the Lord's will. Yeah, it can. How about Jesus? Jesus tells the guys in Matthew 16, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. They're going to, uh, they're going to beat me. They're going to crucify me. Don't worry, on the third day, I will rise again from the dead. And what did Peter say? Therefore, we urged him, <laughs> God forbid, that's not going to happen to you. Right? Because bad things and hurtful things are out of God's will, Jesus. And Jesus tells him this. Evil is using you and your natural inclination to avoid suffering, to get to me, to stop me on a path that God the Father wants me to take because it means the saving of souls and the destruction of the evil one. Your natural inclination sometimes is not an asset to determining God's will. And so he says, listen, it, it's a good path. It's going to be a hard one, but it's ordered by God. And so when the thorn comes your way and mine, listen up, really. Just don't assume we just got to get rid of this thing. Paul said, I, I had something really diabolical happen to me, and it wasn't going away. And I pleaded three times with the Lord. Pray about it three times. And then he said, you know what I heard? Hey, it's working something good. I'll give you the grace, sufficient grace. 2 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 9, you see. So he says, in my weakness, God is strong. So don't always assume he's trying to tell them, hey, going to be tough, but God's calling me. He's got my back. He's going to take care of me. All right, when the house realizes they, they can't move him, he's not going to budge. He, they say, God's will be done. They hit the road for Jerusalem, 17 through 26. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. If you read Acts 6, 15, rather, you'll find James pretty much acts as a senior pastor there in Jerusalem. And all the elders were present. By the way, church history says there were 70 at that church. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law of Moses. Yikes. There, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their sons or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They're certainly going to find out that you're here, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. I hope you've underlined it. I underlined it. 25. 
As for the Gentile believers, we've already written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. We talked about that, Acts 15. Verse 26, the next day Paul took the men, purified himself along with them, then he went into the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. All right, so note takers, some island hopping, details of the voyage, one, two, some more warnings and weepings along the way. Number three, what do we got here? A compromised backslidden church. And let me explain that remark. Now, they're a mega church. Uh, at times, they were up to 10,000 people back in the day. They're probably that same size, 10,000 Messianic Jews, as they're called today. Now, Messianic Jew would be a Jew who happens to accept Christ into their hearts. And we call them Messianic Jews. The Bible calls them born-again Christians. But people in our culture tend to have a little label for everybody. And so even though there's no such thing as a distinction between an Italian Jew or a rich Jew or a I mean, an Italian Christian, a rich Christian, a poor Christian, a Jewish Christian, whatever. There's no such thing as distinctions. We, we sort of do that. And there are people who, like these Jews who are keeping the traditions still. There are people, congregations, just like this one uh, with varying degrees. So Paul begins in your text, very interesting, uh, the Greek says that he started with every little detail. He left no detail out of the three missionary journeys. Now, Paul's hard. He wants the church to come together. He wants that dividing wall to be divided and gone forever. And so he's got these shiny-eyed, Gentile, blondie blues, the goyim standing there, right? And he's going to tell them everything that's gone on. He says, we went to Philippi. They threw us into jail after beating us with rods. And we were singing hymns at midnight, and suddenly there was an earthquake, and our chains fell off, and the, the jailer was going to kill himself, and we cried out to him, and the jailer comes in. This is the kind of Greek sentence that says, he didn't leave out a thing. He told the whole story. The jailer said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And these are all Gentiles, right? So they're making the Jews really wide-eyed, like, wow. And we told him, and the whole family was baptized. Oh, and then we went to another place, and, and uh, we healed through the power of the Holy Spirit. We healed a lame guy. He stands up on his feet, and, and the locals thought, said, thought we were gods. They named us Zeus and Hermes. They brought a bull, and with wreaths, they, they were gonna sacrifice to us like gods. We tore our clothes, and then, then you know what? They found out we weren't gods, and they got embarrassed, and then they wanted to kill us. <laughs> and then they pulled me outside of the city, drug me out there, and stoned me, well, near to death. And that's another sermon for him, because he did die. That's when he got his vision of heaven. 
and he was raised up. So he goes through it all, man. He didn't leave anything out. The Athens, the philosophers, the riots, the moms, the miracles, the deliverances, the conversions, all of that. Talking about the bonfire, man. They were bringing their scrolls in Ephesus, the magic charms, $4.5 million up in smoke of all of their occult paraphernalia. Wow. And then he says, and introducing not just names and places and stories, but people. Here they are. Step forward. Segundus and Aristarchus and Luke and Timothy and all the other Gentiles. These are Gentile believers filled with the Holy Spirit. And not only that, my Jewish brethren, we brought money. Paul smart. He knows how to bridge gaps. We brought a gift, man. And everybody went, oh, really? Yeah, these are from the Gentile churches. They want to bless the, their brother Christians in Israel. So we heard you were suffering, and they represent, and they come forward with the bags of money, all of these guys. So Peter and Aristarchus and Segundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Trifor. Try this and try that. <laughs> there were a lot of them there. So, and they said, what else are you going to say? He says, praise God, brother, praise God. Clears his throat, and then he says, and, and the second and destroys the praise God, in my humble opinion. All right, praise God. Thank you for the money. What are you going to say? And here's the money, and here's the stories, and here's everything, and everybody says, oh, praise God. <clears throat> Now I got a problem, all right? So he says, let me paraphrase for time. James clears his throat, and everybody's like, yeah, tell him. Hey, here's the deal, Brother Paul. Praise the Lord and all, but we've got thousands of believers here, all Hebrews speaking, Moses loving, kosher eating Jews. Yeah, we got Jesus and the law. We got Jesus, and their zealous means to boil for. They're zealous for keeping all the Old Testament laws, and it's a Christian church. That's why I said they're backsliding into legalism. Yikes. We're eating kosher. We're worshiping on Saturday. We're keeping the holy days. Honestly, Paul, no one likes you here. All right, listen. They hear stories that you're out there in the Goyim world telling Jews not to circumcise their son, not to keep the traditions. You're anti-Moses, anti-Temple, anti-Jewish, anti-Hebrew, anti-everything. Here's the truth. Paul actually was saying, if you like all of that, you can do it. Doesn't do a hill of beans for you and God. Doesn't make a difference at all. It means nothing. It's all fulfilled in Christ. If you want to do it, you can, but you don't have to. Once you find Christ, you're free from all of that. If you'd like to still eat kosher, avoid certain foods, if you want to worship on Saturday, that's fine. You haven't sinned. You can keep being your, your Jewish traditions. That's fine. You're weaker. You're the weaker Christian, and we won't look down on you. That's your deal. Romans 14, one person says the Sabbath is on this day. Another person says the Sabbath is on this day. He says, what matters? Keep it to between you and the Lord. It doesn't have any bearing whether it's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, or Tuesday. 
And it's not what goes into our mouth that matters, it's what comes out of our mouth in words that Jesus taught us. That's what he taught. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. We're put on a new self, we're born again. A renewal in which there's no distinction between Gentile, that the word means Gentile, and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, doesn't have any, ma- barbarian, Scythian is an Iranian marauder. Slave and freeman, Christ is in all and is all. Love what one writer said. Paul has shown them that their Jewish ceremonies were useless but not destructive. They were, not, they were, they were only dangerous when they depended on them for salvation. Now, excuse me, I interrupted James. He has more to say, all right? So he says, so what do we do? They all hate you. They think you're out there saying you must not. He was not saying you must not. He was saying you don't have to. All right. So here's what James and the elders say. So let's fix this big, nasty misconception of you, Paul. We have a plan. We've got four young Hebrews here. They've taken a vow, as Jews do. Uh, vows, Christians don't do them. You can, but vows not a Christian thing. It's a Jewish thing. So they're about to go public and present their public offering. Why don't you sponsor them? Join them. Shave your head. Improve your appearance. Become more handsome. Oh, <laughs> uh, they didn't say that last part. All right. Pay their, <laughs> pay their expenses. And by this little show, you can reverse public opinion. So people will see you out there. You'll be singing a little Hebrew song, maybe dun dun da 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 dun da, you know. And they'll say, "Oh, look at him! He's such a nice Jewish boy. He loves Moses. He's taking a vow because he obeys Moses' law." So we want to do that. Bad idea, bad idea, bad move. It's never, never good to do anything to impress somebody or to manipulate the way they think about you. Just silly. It's not going to work. It's going to almost cost him an early flight home because of this nonsense. And so how sad Oh, James goes on, sadly, to say, and about the Gentiles, hey, we're not asking the Gentiles to do this. Talking about them like they're not in the room. The whole thing again. Why are you even talking about what you think the Gentiles should do? There's no difference anymore. 20 years of work, Acts 15, the whole sheet from heaven with the don't call anything unclean anymore and make no distinctions once the blood of Christ is there. It's one all out the window. They're back to keeping the law, looking at Gentiles over there. Hey, let's break for lunch. (laughs) You guys over here and us Jews in the in crowd. That's the thing about the, I'm sorry, the Messianic Jew thing for me as a Jew who's a Christian You have to be careful with that because Gentiles start to feel like Gentiles. There's no such thing as a Gentile or a Jew in Christ. And if you're not careful, you you get a little legalism. We do this. We keep the Sabbath. We keep the holidays. You guys don't. 
we're sort of first class, we're a little bit closer. If I feel that, I have felt that from groups like that. I've met groups like that. Why don't you come and be a part of this? But I have felt a little bit like those feelings. If I feel it, then I know other people feel it because I shouldn't feel it because I'm related. Do you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Did you hear my little Brooklyn accent coming out there? So, Paul acquiesces. Why do you do Paul? What's up with that? There's 70 of them. There's one of him. He's got his homies there. He said, this is my policy. First Corinthians chapter nine, I've already laid down this policy. To the Jew, I've become a Jew to win the Jew. If there's something I can do that's not a sin, it's not a sin to go take a vow, if it'll give me an opportunity to preach the gospel, I'm there. I don't care. I'm not gonna order pork chops when I'm sitting down with a Jew. I'm gonna come under the law, right? So he said, okay, for the sake of peace with you, James, and the elders, and this opportunity, I'll come under. It's not a sin for me. I already, this is part of my own policies anyway. My question to James, if I were in the room, I would have said, hey, James, why don't we instead call an assembly? You're the pastor. Pull out the 70 elders. Get all dressed up. Blow the trumpet. Have Paul stand there and go through the whole thing he just told you, and you say, we stand behind this man. It's a bunch of lies. This is the truth that he preaches. We stand with him arm in arm. You speak against this man. This is 10,000 people go to this church. Why couldn't you do that? Oh, there's some answers to that. We don't want to be associated with that. We want everybody to love us. Even if it means they're doing something theologically incorrect and inferior to the way most Christians should live. And so he says, I'll do it. So the next day, he's got a big heart, man. He said, if I could give up my place in heaven, that they'd be saved, and I could go to hell for them instead, I'd do it. Romans chapter 9, 1 through 5. That's a burden. He's like, Lord, let me out those Jews, my lifelong ambition. Who loves them more than me? Who can understand a Jew like a Jew, like a Pharisee, like a rabbi? I know the scriptures. Just give me a shot at him. So he's going to get a shot at him right now. So the next day, he shaves his head, uh, goes with the guys into the temple, and they're doing their dun dun da 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 dun dun and stuff. Look at me. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. <laughs> Yikes. Verse 27 all the way down. We'll finish up. When the seven days were nearly over, Some Jews from the province of Asia, that's Ephesus, saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere. What a compliment. But wrongly, they say, against our people and our law and this holy place. And besides all this, he's brought Gentiles into the temple area and defiled this holy place. And the Holy Spirit likes to add, uh, well, they previously had seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city, 
with Paul getting some hamburgers and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area, but he didn't. 30, the whole city was aroused. People come running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him. Never been dragged. Wow. Not yet. (laughs) They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And since the commander couldn't get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. Same line, same place as the Lord Jesus Christ 27 years earlier. Let's wrap it up. As the soldiers were about to take Paul inside, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul said, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city, thank you. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood at the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, oh, you'll have to come next Sunday. (laughs) Oh, I just hate when that happens. (laughs) So let's talk about this portion, and then we'll dive in, and he's going to give his testimony. (laughs) All right, so what did we have? We had island hopping. We had some warnings and weepings, 6 to 16. We had a compromised church, 17 to 26. And now a plan that backfired. Of course it was going to backfire. So what happened? They're in the temple doing the thing. Four shiny heads and what have you. All right? And somebody in the temple, a Jew, not a believer, a Jewish unbeliever from Ephesus, Sees the despised man he despised in Ephesus there. Seen him earlier in town with a goyi and says, assumes the four shaped heads are all goyim, the three other ones. And he lays eyes on Paul. And this is the part I really like. He just sees Paul and he goes, help! (laughs) I, I, I just think that he's so desperate. He sees this is the famous Billy Graham of the world who's led, in his eyes, his people astray. He's blasphemed Moses. He's the famous Jew hater. We got him right here. And by the way, he's brought Goy, Yim, into the temple. Well, there are stones found, and we saw them in Israel when we were there, that say... If you are found as a foreigner in the temple area, you will be killed immediately. Capital offense. So that's what gets everybody running amok. And so 
They're mistaken, but it doesn't matter. The fuse is lit. They come wild, wild-eyed, Middle Eastern religious men come running at Paul from all directions. Verse 30, they dragged him, trying to beat him to death. Roman military police show up, so they back off. Verse 32, Paul's placed in their custody with two iron chains, like a criminal, the most godly man in the world. Two chains. By the way, he's in custody in verse 32, never gets out of custody for all the chapters to the end. He's always a prisoner. Now he does, we think, get out at the end, but we'll talk about that. But for our purposes, he does not. He's Paul the prisoner now. Now as the crowd is standing, they want to know, the guys want to know in verse 34 what's going on. They say they can't determine, they're going to bring him in. And then Paul says in classic, educated, highfalutin Greek, he says, may I have a word with you? Sorry, (laughs) suddenly he went British. But the guy was stunned because, wow, you're talking like a professional businessman. Aren't you the, from Al-Qaeda? You know, aren't you an Egyptian terrorist? And he goes, no, I'm just a Jew. He says, hey, hey, hey. His nose is running with blood. Maybe his mouth. He's broken ribs. They tried to kill him. It was a while before they rescued him. Just give me one word. Just let me at him. Just hand me the mic. Please. You don't know I've been dreaming of this moment for my whole life. He's got thousands. It's Pentecost. It's the holy days. They're jammed as far as 1.2 million people in Jerusalem for the holidays. So there are faces everywhere. 50,000. Perfect for the sound. He stands up and he says, please let me talk to them. And the Holy Spirit goes, let him talk to them. (laughs) And the guy goes, yeah, sure, that's a great idea. Let a guy they're trying to kill. Hey, let's get the crowd. Let's give the guy a mic. Come on. (laughs) The angels were like, yeah, thank you. You know, that was a good one. And so he gets the mic, and he's going to talk to them. By the way, (laughs) James, 70 elders, (laughs) hear the sound? They're killing the guy you told to go out there and put on a little show. Where are, where's the intercession? Where are you, elders, coming forth and saying, he's, he's one of us, man. We put him up to this thing. He's innocent. Let us on his behalf intercede. No, you know why? Because those who kind of set you up to do a little showy manipulation, first of all, it will backfire. And when it backfires, they are nowhere to be found, even though you were doing it for them. Take that to heart. (laughs) That is an absolute. And next Sunday, we're going to hear what the Apostle Paul gets to say to the teeming multitudes. Uh, Ken Hughes is a commentary on Acts. And this sermon illustration is how he closed up Paul's fanatical, crazy love, broken body, bloodied face. Please let me talk to them and he, to give his testimony. What's up with him? And he closes with this, and so do I. 
Some years ago, Columbia University had a great football coach by the name of Lou Little. Lou would tell the story about a young man who tried out for the varsity team who wasn't very good, quite honestly, but Lou liked his unique attitude and thought it would be good to have him around for team morale. Now, as the season went on, Lou began to develop a tremendous admiration for this boy. One of the things that especially impressed him was the boy's relationship with his father. Whenever the father would come for a visit to the campus, the boy and his father would always be seen walking arm in arm. There was absolutely a close bond. They were always seen on Sunday going to and from the chapel. They shared a faith in in God together. One day, the coach got a call from the college administrator. The boy's father had died. They knew that the coach and he were good, uh, had a good relationship, so they said, would you be the one to tell him uh, from the school? Well, we called the boy in and he let him know, your dad passed away, and so he took a few days and went home. When the boy returned, there was a very important game coming up. Lou went to see him and said, is there anything I could do for you, man? And you've been through a lot, the loss of your dad. And to the coach's surprise, the boy said, well, would you let me start the game on Saturday? Lou was kind of taken by surprise. The young man really wasn't good enough. He said, I I can't promise you stay in the game, but I'll make sure that you start. And after a few plays, if necessary, I'll take you out. So the day of the big game arrives. To everyone's amazement, the coach starts the boy who had never played that season. But imagine even the coach's surprise when on the very first play from scrimmage, he single-handedly made a tackle that threw the opposing team for a loss. He continued to play so exceptionally that Lou left him in the entire game, and the boy led his team to victory, and he was voted the outstanding player for the game. When the game was over, Lou approached the boy and said, son, man, what got into you today? And the boy replied, You knew it was coming, didn't you? (laughs) You remember when my father would visit me here at school. We'd spend a lot of time together walking arm in arm. It was because my father was blind. And today was the first time he could see me play. (laughs) Do you love that? (laughs) I, I had it. I had it down there and I took it out because I'm like, I'm not crying in front of everybody. <laughs> Every time I rehearsed it in my mind, I got choked up. I was like, I'll just rehearse it 30 times and then I'll be used to it. So I did it over and over and over again and I cried anyway. <laughs> What's behind Paul? Five times from the Jews, 39 lashes. Three times to be beaten with rods. 12,000 miles establishing churches in 1,500 square miles radius evangelizing the world where they're trying to kill him in every single stop. 
My dad's watching. <laughs> My dad's watching me play. You do it for that, and he knows what his dad paid for his ability to play on that field, and he's going to make it worth his dad's while. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, as Paul the Apostle said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. We do, Lord, we want to. We want to be like you, Lord. We want to follow you no matter what. We thank you for all the truths we, we found in this chapter. Help us to apply them in Jesus' name, amen. And why don't we stand a closing hymn? Sometimes I think that dying for the Lord and being a martyr might be easier than actually having to live the Christian life every day, right? We're all, hey, make me a martyr for you. It's like, how about every day to die to ourselves and to live for Jesus? And so I hope you're inspired. I am just to show my love and appreciation to God for saving me and saving a spot in heaven on a throne what he says all of you who love his appearing crowns and thrones in the world to come it's hard to believe but I take it by faith let's let's what well, right <laughs> let's see how we can just say thank you not so much here but the way we live and embrace God's will for our lives amen, amen. let's pray Father God, we commit ourselves to do your will. Come what may. You lead, Lord. We'll pray. None of us are looking for trouble. None of us want to die. None of us want to be martyred. But Lord, we just want to do your will. Whether that's going to be in a place of safety and comfort as it often is. Or if it's going to be on a sick bed or uh, in uh, times of trouble, in adversity. Lord, in sickness and health, in good days and bad, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, we're yours. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Don't forget about prayer at the cross. It was a good one for prayer. And also we'll see you Wednesday night or next Sunday. God bless you.